the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. You and I spent the last two days uh, dedicating our show to being with Food for the Poor, so we didn't get to talk about just the horrific, uh, senseless school awful. shooting that happened in Michigan a couple days ago. Um, there are now four students who were killed mm. uh, at Oxford High School in Oxford Township in Michigan on Tuesday. Uh, a 15-year-old is in custody, and you start reading his stories, uh, and you're just like, oh, a, a, um, a there's just a lot of darkness. There's just yeah. a lot of darkness in his writings. Uh, his premeditation to this. And Aubrey, every time we see these things, that it brings up a lot of emotions, right? As parents, Absolutely. you start to go, man, what if this happened in my kid's school? You start to hear stories of of heroism. Like I'd love to tell the story here in a second of, of Tate Meyer, who was at the school and, and died. Oh, yeah. Um, and then also it brings up theological questions. Where's God in this, in all of this senselessness? So I'd just love for you to react, take any of those as we kind of again reflect upon yet another senseless school shooting. I mean, I, I think the word senseless is part of it. It's almost hard to react because it's hard. You don't, you can't make sense of it. Right. And I think anytime you can't make sense of something, that right there lets you know that that is not from God. Because God is not nonsensical. Like God is not chaotic. This is the work of the enemy. And I don't mean to over-spiritualize it, but I think you said it so well, Brian. It feels dark when a 15-year-old, like a like a, a precious son of God who is only 15 years old, that's my son's age, yeah. is uh, contemplating, planning, murdering his classmates. That is not good. That is not mm. from God. And so I think to answer the question, like, where is God? What we know, I mean, this is the, the hard part where in these moments, you have to go to what you know about God and who God says he is. God says he's Emmanuel. He's near us. He's not far distant from this. He is in the middle. His Holy Spirit is here somehow. And I, I don't know how, and I don't want to rush to say like, everything's going to be okay. Cause it's not. Mm. But what I do want to say is in the grand story of God, God wins and good wins. And this will be okay somehow because Jesus will somehow show up in it. But at the same time, my heart is broken, devastated for these families. And, you know, Brian, you and I, you and I talked about this yesterday. These days make me so scared to send my kids to school. And I pray for my kids every morning as we're driving to school. But at the end of the day, you send them somewhere. It's out of your hands. And these are becoming more and more normal. I saw somebody on Twitter yesterday actually say what has happened when I think it was Elmo was tweeting higher than the school shooting. Like, like we've become Mm. so numb to these things. Mm. And, and so it just, yeah, it makes you nervous. It makes you scared. It makes you sad. It makes you wonder. And it honestly, it makes me get on my knees and like, Lord, you better bring an end to this in Jesus name. And also to take some action, like our friend, um, Taylor Schumann, who's been on the, um, show before she wrote a book when thoughts and prayers aren't enough 
she was a shooting survivor um, from a, I believe it was a high school shooting, right? Uh, college, I believe it was. College yeah, she so was she, working. Yeah. She's a great resource. All I'm saying is I'm saying a lot right now because I feel a lot right now. Yeah. Ryan, and we, we have to move from prayer to action. Something's got to give here. Yeah. Yeah. It's like what we talked about with food for the poor yesterday. Like you can be the answer to a prayer, uh, to yeah. the prayers. Right. And so what can we do? I do want to highlight the story. I was reading this of 16 year old Tate Meyer, star football player at Oxford uh, High School. Um, upon the shooting, he ran at the kid and tried to disarm him and tackle him. And he lost his life, but but mm. probably saved a bunch of lives in the meantime, as people were able to get mm. away. And so, uh, you know, there's always, man, you, you, you don't want to over romanticize it because oh, he's a hero. Like he still is a 16 year old whose parents have lost their son and yeah. who still lost his life. But there is that story of heroism. And Aubrey, what do we do with the fear? Cause I'm like with you, yeah. with you, especially after you watch these kind of things and yeah. my kids are at school and I hear a police car in my neighborhood, oh. I immediately like yeah. tense up. Right. And yeah. so, but we're not meant to live as people of fear. We're right. not meant to live in fear. And it's not just school and shootings, but our kids are getting older. They go off and they start spreading their wings a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. they start being a little more independent. Mm-hmm. How do you rec, um, reconcile that fear that comes after you have stories like this i mean i isn't this sort of like and i don't mean to be cliche here but isn't this sort of the dance of life like the whole time we're holding on to fear while we're holding on to hope right we're holding on to grief while we're holding on to um goodness and blessing and and joy in our life. Like this seems to be, I I don't know the right answer to this, but this seems to be somehow how we have to navigate. Like there is fear. There is, there are evil things to fear. At the same time, we are invited in Jesus to hold on to like a hope that's larger than our fear. And I, I don't know how you do both gracefully, but I know that we can do both with the spirit's help. And, you know, I'm also just thinking practically like things like the schools. I, mm-hmm. I am not saying this is the school's fault in any way, shape or form, but I do wonder in general, can our schools um, be doing more for like the mental health of students, yeah. for students who are struggling, for students who are being bullied, for students who are depressed. And then even as students, like, are they being good neighbors to their peers? Did anybody know this kid was hurting? And again, I'm not placing blame on anybody. I just wonder if there's something more proactive um, as we pray, as we grieve, as we hold our joy, are there also proactive steps that the schools can be taking and we can be taking as parents as well? Yeah. One of the tragic, I don't know if you saw this, but one of the tragic amongst all of the tragedy in this story, one of the tragedies is that the school had a meeting with this boy's parents the day of the shooting to talk about their concerns about their son. And uh, literally on that day, and the parents are being called into question a lot. And all of this Mm -hmm. is going to come out, right? These Mm -hmm. stories, but uh, it does highlight when you see behaviors that are worrisome that are, uh, and Mm -hmm. this was beyond worrisome, what people were Mm -hmm. seeing, uh, you've got to highlight it. You've got to call it out. You've got mm. to go to the authorities and um, be even overly cautious, right? Like yeah. if you're like, ah, I don't know. It might just be a kid being a kid. No, like if if you don't want to have the regrets of going, what if I'd said something? And so, right. um, yeah, it's so complicated. And as you said, there's been obviously as we've come out of COVID and kids are back in school and there's all these mental health issues and stuff, there's been more of these in uh, as Christians, we need to be people who pray, but who also act and do what we can 
to be part of a solution. So a yeah. difficult story, um, but it should, like you said, drive us to our knees. Well, coming up next, Aubrey, I want to highlight a, a fascinating story out of the Southern Baptist Convention of a dad and an influential pastor uh, who recommended a sermon of his son's and now it's going kind of crazy. People are really pushing back on it. It's a very complex story that I think you and I could spend some time wrestling with next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Let me tell a, a fascinating and complex story okay. here. Uh, out of the Southern Baptist world, because I think there's so much uh, in this story. Former Southern Baptist Convention president named James Merritt. He's also the pastor of of a large Southern Baptist church, highly, highly respected um, pastor and leader. He resigned his position yesterday as a visiting professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, it's important to note here, he resigned. He was not pushed out. He was not asked to resign. Uh, he did this kind of, in fact, he kind of surprised the, the president of the seminary a little bit in doing it. Uh, but for this reason, it's amid a controversy that followed his decision to share a short um, sermon, a short message by his son, who is an author and a well-known guy by the name of Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan Merritt, mm -hmm. about a year or two ago, came out as gay. And uh, so there have been this fascinating uh, Twitter kind of you can see their relationship on Twitter. And I actually find it to be really beautiful because James Merritt and Jonathan Merritt clearly disagree on a lot of theology. Yeah. Yeah. And and they're not shy about that on Twitter. But James Merritt for me is such a great picture of a of a dad who unconditionally loves his son. Uh, yeah. amidst theological differences and stuff. They say it. He will say things like, even though I disagree with my son on a lot of things, uh, I will always be in his corner. I will always love him. Things like that. Uh, so he declined serving as a visiting professor at the seminary, not wanting to be a distraction to the school. Here's where it all starts. On November 22nd, uh, Jonathan Merritt had just given a sermon at his church called Good Shepherd Church in New York City. And James Merritt tweeted out part of the sermon and said this, I don't agree with my loved son, Jonathan mm. Merritt, on everything to be sure, but I encourage you to listen to his message on Mark 13. It is both brilliant and faithful to the gospel and the coming of Jesus. Twitter blew up, especially, <laughs> especially conservative Southern Baptist yeah. Twitter, to the point that the conservative Baptist network uh, released a statement condemning James Merritt post of sharing his son's message, arguing that the former Southern Baptist president was, quote, wholly illogical and demonstrably dangerous. Mm. They went on to say for one who's employed by a Southern Baptist seminary uh, to promote a unrepentant sinner, no matter whose son he is as a trustworthy preaching source is a betrayal of trusting Southern Baptist. And wow. so it just blew up. It went crazy. Jonathan Merritt went on to tweet. Uh, he simply wrote, Christianity is not for the faint of heart, folks. Jesus asks us to love all, even fundamentalists who rage at the mere thought of the other, praying for the uh, conservative Baptist network that they would come to know the God whose name is love. So that was mm. the Jonathan Merritt's yeah, answer. Yeah. 
And so, Aubrey, I just found this story really interesting. I've been kind of following it. I don't have a great answer to what should happen and why step down and this and that, but it's so complex. Yes, There's a is. father and a son. There's issues of who we should be promoting. Can you listen to somebody who maybe preaches something you agree with, but you disagree maybe with their lifestyle mm-hmm. or their theology? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot wrapped up in the story. And I know I kind of dumped this story on you because I don't think you had heard it before right, this. Right. But what, as I tell you that story, what do you think about it? I, you know, there's <laughs> there's so many complicated layers in it. Like in one sense, okay, let's just like peel back some of the layers. In one sense, like, this is a dad being proud of his son. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a part of me that is just like, yeah, you mm-hmm. should be promoting the sermons of your son that you're proud of. Okay. So the bottom layer, right? Yes. Next layer is, all right, that dynamic changes a bit when you're in public leadership, mm-hmm. clearly in a pretty conservative theological camp, right? And mm-hmm. so we can't deny the reality of like, unfortunately, Merritt can't say this about his son outside of who he is and outside of his influence in the theological, in the Southern Baptist Convention, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Ah, so I, I think there are several questions to ask. Like you said, who can we listen to? Um, and this gets complicated for me, Brian. I'll, I'll say why. Okay. Um, because I, there's a couple of reasons. One, no, no pastor or preacher is beyond sin. Right. So if you were to look at your life, if you were to look at my life, like our the people in our lives probably shouldn't be listening to us, right? Because we're not outside of sin. That said, here's what feels complicated to me. That said, uh, we do in, in a lot of Orthodox evangelical churches believe that homosexuality is not the God-honoring lifestyle or not what God has ultimately for his children. And so that becomes tricky because it's not just that Jonathan Merritt is like a sinner like the rest of us, it's he's chosen to live in this lifestyle. So I can mm-hmm. see why there's pushback. Okay. I'm I'm just ex- I'm just verbally processing. I'm enjoying this. this. I'm enjoying right. this. I'm enjoying Here's, this. Okay. Can I be honest? This is my first reaction. This is going to sound really bratty and petty, but I'm just it is, I know what you're going to okay. say. <laughs> <laughs> this is literally like you won't hear from a woman, but you'll hear from a homosexual guy. And this is where I get really frustrated with the like, with the reality that so many churches, especially in the SBC, are not willing to hear from women. I even read an article today like you can learn from their examples, but not from their words. Like I, I, he will recommend his homosexual son before he would recommend a woman to, to preach. And I, I have an issue with that. Like, I think this is where it just becomes so complicated and confusing. So I don't know, Brian, what do you think? What's the standard? Should he have done this? I think, okay, let me, let me say it a different way. If, if it wasn't a father and a son, Mm -hmm. I think we would all understand the pushback. Yes. Like if it were me, if it were you, if it were, or maybe Russell Moore or somebody else, the, the current head of the SBC, if he were to say, listen to Jonathan Merritt's sermon, everyone would have a problem with that and they would understand why. It gets complicated because it's father and son. Mm-hmm. That's, I, I verbally process all of it. That's where I've landed. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. I'm just going to keep, I'm going to let that you was a keep hot going. mess. I'm so sorry. Uh, this makes me frustrated. I think it highlights, it highlights the complicated nature of it because um, the sermon, I watched some of it and it's, he does a good job with it. Like I wasn't, it wasn't a sermon about homosexuality. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yes. he, he'd said some things about Mark 13 that I probably wouldn't say, but it wasn't 
there was it wasn't heretical you know what i mean and so i appreciated that and like you said it gets really complicated with a father and a son so maybe should he not have gone to twitter and said specifically listen maybe i don't know i don't have a problem with it uh jonathan merritt went on to say I'm not the only gay child of an SBC pastor who's come home for the holidays. Statements like this make it so much harder for those who are not welcome this time of year. Despite our deep disagreements, I receive kindness and love, not Mm -hmm. disgust when I come home. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Dad. Like, I thought that was sweet. Wow, I love Um, it. And so I think there's room for disagreement here as to was it wrong to put out. I will always kind of land on the the side of a a father – backing their child yeah totally. and uh i understand it gets complicated because of the public nature of yeah. james Merritt's role and i think it was right of him then to go for the sake of backing my son i'll i'll resign from this visiting professorship even though i wasn't asked to resign yeah. he was not asked to resign he wasn't pushed out he just said fine i don't want to be a distraction but i'm going to go on loving my son uh i think as parents we want to uh do all we can to keep those relationships right keep mm-hmm. those open lines but it is a complicated complicated story yeah i would also suggest that i think we're getting too comfortable uh ripping each other online there you uh, go That's and that good, that i think that there is a lot of um I think there's a lot to be said about the conservative Baptist network there, their statement. uh, And why do they feel so comfortable to just light somebody up like that? Like, it feels very political. It feels very what we see in the world of politics. And that's the problem a little bit uh, with what we see going on in the church. So we're wrestling with it. I think it's a complicated story. That's why we like to bring them up. Uh, We'd love to know uh, what you think. Well, coming up next. Why is humor and laughter so important? We're going to talk about Mel Brooks and his new autobiography uh, and the importance of humor and laughter and important, especially self-deprecating humor and laughing Mm -hmm. at ourselves. We're going to talk about that important topic next on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Aubrey, one of the things we like to do on this show, right, we talk about hard things and wrestle with things and try to um, just kind of chew on the difficult things of life and help people process. But we also like to laugh, right? (laughs) That's true. Laughter is an important part of life. Without laughter... Laughter is good medicine, as the Bible says. Somebody has said that before. And... um, that got me thinking. Uh, we were we were watching some clips of Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks, uh, I think it is nineties now. Uh, what is your favorite? Do you have a favorite Mel Brooks movie? I knew you were going to ask me that, and of course, I, I yes. Is it Blazing Saddles? I think that's the one. It's so funny and inappropriate and hilarious. It, um, it's true. Okay, there's another. There's a Mel Brooks musical too that Will Ferrell was in. Uh, that was <laughs> about Hitler, which sounds hilarious. I can't think of the name right now, but it is so funny. <laughs> uh, the The movie was not that great, but Kevin and I saw it uh, on stage and it was literally, I mean, I just like to die for. Okay. What about you? That's funny. I, so this is, this is going to by far not his best movie, but it's right in the wheelhouse of me as a young boy. Oh, let's hear job. it. Spaceballs. Oh, I forgot about Spaceballs. 
Spaceballs. <laughs> okay, I loved that movie. I don't know why my parents let me watch it, but I loved Spaceballs growing I up. I understand Blazing Saddles, <laughs> Young Frankenstein. They're all yeah. better movies, but I was like, that was like, I was in junior high, right? And that's yeah. junior high humor yeah. yes. at its finest. The Producers, by the way, is the name of the, the musical that I'm talking about. The Producers. Go. go ahead. Go. I didn't mean to interrupt you, though, Brian. Go no, ahead. Spaceballs, just that spoof of Star Wars. And it's so dumb, but you'll laugh through the whole thing. <laughs> Seriously, it's so dumb. So Mel Brooks just, just came out with his autobiography called All About Me. And it highlights for us just the um, the importance of laughter, right? The mm. importance of comedy, the importance of a smile on your face. And uh, I, I, he did an interview recently with George Stephanopoulos talking about this new book. And, and I want you to hear this funny story okay. that he tells about being on one of his first dates uh, with his wife. Listen to this story. Is this true that on one of your first dates with Ann, she had to slip you $20 under the table? She did. I didn't have any money. And I was dating Ann Bancroft, who was on Broadway and The Miracle Worker. So anyway, we were at a Chinese restaurant one night and I said, I'm, I'm broke. She slipped me a $20 bill under the table. And the bill came to something 14 or 15, you know, Chinese. Wasn't that expensive. So, I mean, I, I gave him the $20 bill, the, the, the waiter, and I said, keep it. I got outside, slapped him. I said, why? What? What? She said, don't be such a big shot with my money. <laughs> so I, I learned, you know. I just love that. I mean, she she slaps him and says, don't be so generous with, with my, my money. money. Oh, that's that's an amazing, amazing story. I also didn't know he was married to Anne Bancroft. So that made me happy. I love that. I did not either. But it also does remind you, most of us only hear of people like Mel Brooks or other stars when they've hit it big and they're yeah. successful and they're rich and they're this. But he talks in the interview, but also they're about being broke. Like, I didn't have any yeah. money. Uh, he says at another spot in the interview, he says, you never saw me coming off the stage when I bombed and when I was mm. doing stand-up and people were booing. Mm. Like, there's a lot of failure, but a lot of comedy in the midst. Uh, let's talk big picture, Aubrey. Okay. The importance of laughter, the importance of not taking yourself so seriously, the importance of self-deprecating humor. So much of our lives, social media, everything feels so heavy yeah. and feels so like, yeah. I don't think we, I think we all take ourselves too seriously, right? That's what we do. We take our, uh, we take our debates too seriously. We just take ourselves too seriously. We got to be reminded to laugh at the world and laugh at ourselves. Don't you think? You know, I, I'm telling a story tonight, actually, the Wheaton Bible Church event. I won't tell all the details. It's a little inappropriate. But uh, it, I was with some girlfriends over the weekend, a few weekends ago for a girls' night out. And in the middle of our, like, having very serious conversations, we all decided to break out into dancing, specifically twerking. Like, we were learning how to twerk, <laughs> okay, which is, like, <laughs> ridiculous. We're, like, middle-aged women trying to do this, okay? But here's the thing. This is what I was thinking about. Like, the subtext, we were dancing, we're laughing, we're giggling. Meanwhile, like... One of us is literally fighting for her life for stage four metastatic cancer. Mm, mm. Other, me, I had just lost my mother-in-law. Another woman there is just stressed out about some things with her kids. Another is looking for her purpose, even as a 40-year-old. Like, all of us are there carrying these heavy, heavy things, as everyone in the world is. 
but you have to dance and you have to laugh and you have to be silly as ridiculous as it sounds because it's like a there's something actually I think really deep going on I think it's a yeah. signpost I think it's a witness to the fact that like we long for more and more is coming and I, I think laughter is just this beautiful gift from God that's like it will be okay and yeah. there is something to delight and enjoy in and 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 you can step back a little bit, like you said, when you're taking yourself too seriously, or maybe life feels too serious, laughter just like, I don't know that it changes everything, but it's like this light and momentary delight that helps you keep going. Yeah, I, I remember the very famous speech that former basketball coach Jim Valvano made months before he died from cancer at the ESPY Awards. And they still play it every year. It's 30 years ago that he gave mm. this speech. And one of the famous spots he says, I'd encourage people to go watch it. You could, it's been watched tens of millions of times. Jim Valvano is his name, his SB speech, but he says, every day you should laugh and every day you should cry. Wow. Uh, that, and he goes on and he says it in like this, he's just this Italian guy. And he goes, he goes, that's a full day. If you laugh and if you cry, that's a full day. And there are days where you just feel overwhelmed and you just want to cry. But there needs to be some laughter in it. And there's days where you're just laughing and you got reminded that there is some heaviness in the world. But the, keeping those in tension, I guess, is my point uh, of realizing that even in the darkest times of life, laughter, to use the overused phrase, is the best medicine. Like sometimes you just need to laugh mm, and, um, yeah, it's and good. enjoy the things of life. So your story of learning to uh, <laughs> work, uh, that is really funny. And I'm going to tell it tonight in the middle of my speech. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to that. Text me when that happens. Uh, will do, uh, will do. Laughter truly is the best medicine. And so uh, we wanted to just highlight that. And it, it's important. It's an important part of life. Well, coming up next, Aubrey, uh, really huge story is the Supreme Court showdown over Roe versus Wade has really begun. And a mm -hmm. uh, lot of people with lots of opinions about it. We're going to dive into that debate and share our own thoughts. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are so thrilled that you're with us today. If you've missed any of this week's show, we want to remind you that we were joined by our very good friends at Food for the Poor. They are on the ground in Haiti right now, bringing relief, bringing food to children who are actually starving. And when we say that, I want you to know that we're not being metaphorical. We're not being exaggerative. Like this is a life or death situation in Haiti right now, an actual humanitarian crisis. And if you want to help, if you want to be the hands and feet of Jesus to a child in need in Haiti, to a mama, to a daddy in need in Haiti, you can go to our website, 1160hope.com. You can click on the red Help Haiti banner. You can also text the word Help Haiti. That's one word, Help Haiti to 91999. Or you can call 855-901-4673. Again, that's 855-901-4673 to make a difference in Haiti today. All right, Brian. Well, there is something significant going on in the Supreme Court right now. At least five justices yesterday expressed a willingness to significantly pare down, if not overturn Roe v. Wade. There's some arguments happening right now over a Mississippi law which prohibits abortion after 15 weeks. Have you been following this story at all? 
I have. It's it's really important, especially yeah. for those of us uh, who grieve the the accessibility and the uh, presence of abortion within our culture, and, and those of us in the church, especially who have been you know preaching against it and trying to support groups that are trying to make changes. It feels like it's coming to a head, and and this could be coming in the coming months. And so this is going to be a huge cultural moment mm-hmm. um, as people. Uh, on both sides of the aisle, either celebrate this or decry this. So nothing's been done yet. And right. it's a lot of legalese right now. Yesterday yes. was kind of oral arguments before the Supreme Court. But like you said, it, it has to do with this Mississippi law. And it's a lot of people think stuff's going to be put back on the states now. So a lot of differences. And so there's a lot of legalese here, Aubrey. But at the heart of it, for those of us who aren't lawyers, it is uh, there might be a severe paring down, if not elimination, of what was established in Roe versus Wade. And, and it's something we both can celebrate, but also then go, OK, what does that mean for now? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Something we can celebrate. And then, yeah, how do we respond? How does the church respond? Mm-hmm. Part of the like one of the major talking points in this whole conversation, this whole debate is really about the viability line. Like when mm-hmm. is a when is a fetus? When is a child actually Viable, And I wanted to play some audio. This is Harris Faulkner at Fox News interviewing former assistant U.S. attorney Andrew McCarthy talking about that very question. When is the viability line? So let's listen to that. So the viability line that exists in Roe versus Wade, Casey, is that 24 weeks. Mississippi says viability for life now because of science moving us forward in decades should be earlier than that 15 weeks. Talk to to me about what really was highlighted to you. What what was important about that viability line? Well, I, I think what stuck out to me about that is that uh, Chief Justice Roberts suggested that the entire edifice of Roe was basically built on sand. That is, that viability was not something that was argued by either of the sides in Roe. Uh, it was something basically that Justice Harry Blackman, the author of Roe, uh, came up with as a as a measure uh, that he sort of pulled out of the air in order to accommodate the uh, uh, the competing interest. And then flashing forward to Casey, uh, in Casey, what hadn't even been argued in Roe suddenly became uh, the central feature of Roe. Uh, and he, I, I think, what Roberts was underscoring here is that this whole thing has been uh, built on uh, really a very, very shaky, almost non-existent foundation, uh, which does, you know, on one hand, you would say maybe that means you should toss the whole thing. But I agree with uh, with John that where Robert seemed to be heading was to say, look, we have a very narrow question before us here, much more narrow than the party seemed to be arguing, which is, is 15 weeks an OK regulation? Or is any an okay regulation. So, Brian, I, I think for the Christian, you know, this question of, of viability is, like you were saying before, this is not a legalese issue mm-hmm. for us, right? Yeah. In, in, in some ways, you know, I don't know if this is okay to say, but I'm going to go ahead and say, in, in some ways, it's not really even a scientific issue for us. Like, no mm-hmm. matter what the, the scientific community says, for the Christian, 
we believe that life begins at conception. And in fact, I mean, I think we could even argue that life begins before conception because we believe Mm. God knew us before we were in our mother's womb. Mm, That's important. And so, you know, it's very interesting. Russell Moore actually uh, said something at Christianity Today. He wrote something that said this, the court was wrong to grant human rights on the basis of viability or unviability. And we are wrong to do the same despising weakness and idolizing power. What are your Mm. thoughts pastorally on this topic of viability? Yeah. So I think Russell Moore brings up the fascinating point there to go. uh, For us, it can't be about viability because um, or simply about viability, because like you said, we believe God created in at the moment of conception. We believe that God created in their mother's womb. Um, and so therefore it's not a question of could this baby survive right now? Could this baby not survive? That, um, that discussion shouldn't be what drives us. So on that, Russell Moore, I think is right because it also does work its way down. There are other points in life where people are sick or injured or diseased mm. where viability could also be called into question right. where you go, okay, that's this. I would also highlight though this idea of viability, um, you know, I think is going in what I would say is our favor, right? Earlier and earlier, we're realizing within the womb when a baby can feel pain, when a baby's heartbeat is doing yeah. this. Very different than when Roe versus Wade was decided way good back point, in the early Brian. 70s. Very good point. But listen to this. I would say that there is d- that, that the consensus, not consensus, the ideas on this are going in very opposite directions. Just as Sotomayor yesterday said this. That a fetus that recoils at being dismembered doesn't necessarily indicate that it feels pain, compares physical responses of patients who are brain dead. So she's going, no, mm. I don't, I don't buy that. And so mm. I think what we feel in our nation, Aubrey, is this, that those who are pro-choice feel even more to be pro-abortion. Like there's. That's uh, it. Yeah. This is not something we should even be trying to talk against and right. trying to make safe and rare. And, and those of us who are uh, pro-life are saying, Hey, yeah, we want to be pro-life from womb to tomb all the way through. But mm-hmm. but a big part of that is to to save these innocent children. Yeah, absolutely it is. And so there's a lot of flamethrowing. There's a lot of rhetoric right now. But what it really comes down to is uh, what do you believe about creation of, of a child? When do you believe a, a what do you believe about the dignity of a baby? Right. Uh, and when does that dignity come right. on? And that's it. That's right. Russell Moore's point that it's even before viability. Yes. And if that's the case, then that has to drive your, your opinions about abortion. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think we have to remember that our call as Christians is to care for the most vulnerable, to care for the least of these. And there is not more vulnerable and there's nothing more vulnerable than a baby, mm-hmm. there's nothing more vulnerable than an unborn baby. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I just, yeah. I think for the Christian, like this is really a foundational call for us. This is a foundational um, stance for us that really doesn't have to be political. It works its way out in politics, but it's a theological issue. Like, what do we believe about human life? And what do we believe about what we are called to do and be as Christians defending those who cannot defend themselves. And so yes. I, I do think like this is this is going to be an interesting story, Brian, to keep watching how it unfolds. I think it might surprise people to keep praying. And then, like you said, but then what will the church do? Yeah. So I either think that's a way, huge part. how will the church support women 
How will the church support babies? That's a huge part yes. of this conversation. And let me quickly point out our old friend, David French. That's why we like to go to him because he, especially on legal stuff, because I think a lot of us are thinking either Roe versus Wade is going to completely remain intact or it's going to go away. And therefore, all abortions are going to go away. Right. Let me quickly tell you what he wrote. He wrote, if the court reverses Roe, it won't do so because the majority hates women or views women as second class citizens. Indeed, a woman would almost certainly be in the court's majority and the court would leave intact the ability of legislatures to protect abortion rights. Instead, it will be because the majority embraces a constitutional order that limits the power of the judiciary to write laws and expands the power of the people to define the heart of liberty for themselves. So I guess mm. my one caution would be dig into the the re- read for yourself. Don't listen to the sound bites coming yeah, from all good. the sides. Understand what really is at play here. And then, as you said, we as the church need to stand up in this moment and say, we will be the ones who will support single moms. We will be the ones yes. who support unwanted children, as opposed to just kind of lobbying stuff right now. Yeah, good word for all of us. Well, coming up next, we are joined by Stephen Barr. He is the founding pastor of Brian. My dream church. Yes, it is. The cast member church at Disney. I can't wait for that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Aubrey, uh, we've talked many times on this show before. I love Disney World, but you... Love Disney World. I mean, yeah. Thank you for emphasizing that. Yes. I am a little obsessed with Disney World. Yeah. And you Cur- might be currently wondering, planning my next trip right now. Wonderful. You might be wondering why we're bringing that up. Well, it has to do with our next guest who we are joined by right now. His name is Stephen Barr. He's the founding pastor of a church called Cast Member Church and also the author of a book called A Guide to a Life Beyond Imagination. And he's got a new book coming out uh, in a little while called Kingdom Influence, Three Proven Keys to Revealing Jesus in a Skeptical and Suspicious World. Stephen, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. Oh, Brian, Aubrey, it's great to be with both of you. It is absolutely our pleasure. All right, Stephen, tell us about yourself, but also just tell us about Cast Member Church. (laughs) It's such a unique church. So tell us a little bit about yourself, but then please tell us about your church. I'll probably just tell you a little about myself and a lot about Cast Member Church because that's my passion. Um, Well, uh, I do uh, live in Orlando, Florida with my lovely wife, Lucia, and our two children, Marisol and Miguel. I have been in the ministry uh, full-time for over 30 years. And and so uh, I was a worship leader for much of my life. And Mm -hmm. then about the time I turned – I was turning 50 years old, I realized, hmm, do I really want to be that – 50-year-old guy in skinny jeans. And and I just, I realized that I was going to probably need to shift into some kind of role, either mentor worship leaders, or as someone wisely came to me and said, hey, have you considered planting a church? Mm. And uh, I became a church planter about, um, I would say, 12, 11 or 12 years ago, we uh, planted a church in San Antonio, Texas, uh, focused on the artsy community. Mm. But in the process of planting that church, there was a discontent within me. Um, I, I, I can't say that I was bored, but I'm just one of those people who likes, you know, running my head into brick walls until they break. <laughs> and, uh, and so there was no challenge. It just seemed that things were going. And someone mentioned to me, Stephen, uh, uh, why don't you plant a church at Disney? 
Hmm. And here, and here's what's really funny about this. This is just shows you how God works. I was a cast member, which is anyone who was employed by the Disney parks around the world. They're called cast members, not employees okay? because they're a part of a show. And so it doesn't matter if you're the president of the company or the custodian who works up and down Main Street USA, you're a cast member. Hmm. Well, I was a cast member in 1991. And I remember in that time thinking, wow, I wish there was a church that I could be a part of because Mm -hmm. our schedules, cast member schedules are are crazy, especially on the weekends. And there was no opportunity to get involved with the church. That was just a little passing thought. And so when someone told me about 11 years ago, have you thought about, you know, why don't you plant a church at Disney? I remembered that. And I, I, what I think it was, is it was a, God had planted a seed a long time ago that he was going to do something. And so uh, it took me about a year to convince my wife to move from San Antonio to Orlando. Uh, But uh, when, when she was ready to go, God made it clear to her that it was time to move to Orlando. And um, we are going to celebrate our 10 year anniversary of cast member church this January. Oh, that is so awesome. And Stephen, I I think I would just love to hear a story of uh, this sounds like such a unique expression of the church. And I mean, one or two stories of how uh, the cast member church is following Jesus and bringing the kingdom like literally right there in the kingdom, right? Like, just, just tell us a couple of stories of what God's doing. Oh, my gosh. Well, um, well, I, it's so funny uh, that you mentioned the word expression, because when we started Cast Member Church, I, to be honest with you, remember I said I had been a worship leader for a long time. I was just going to plant a normal church, you know, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, something that maybe that wasn't Sunday centric, but something that would that would uh, serve the needs of Christians there. Uh, God had a completely different idea. Uh, two weeks after we arrived, I had, this is so funny, I had like a notebook that was probably two inches thick of my vision, and I emphasize my vision, Mm -hmm. for cast member church. Two weeks into that, it was as if God dropped it in the trash and said, thanks, but I have another plan. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, he said, uh, and he revealed in a way to us three things. He, He revealed that he was going to seed a new expression of his church in uncharted territory. Hmm. which meant we were going to have to do something that he was asking us to do something that had not been done before, certainly not in my experience. The second thing was, is he was going to form it. This is so important. He was going to form it out of those who were skeptical and suspicious of him. Wow. Mm. And, and I, I will admit that was incredibly awkward for me to, to, to hear and to feel uh, because I had lived in a bubble. I had worked in a bubble for many, many years, that that Christian bubble. uh, And to now step into a world where people who were indifferent, even skeptical and suspicious, that was going to be uncomfortable. And I think God, that's God's sense of humor, but it was something. And the third thing he said he would do is he would multiply it around the world without the need of a building or a staff. Wow. So all three of these things were incredibly uncomfortable, but we knew that he would do it. We would be dependent upon him to do it. So we started, we started very simply, Aubrey, we started inviting cast members over to our house for dinner. Hmm. That was it. My wife, my wife uh, took a job at Disney. She works in Epcot and uh, she started building relationships with 
uh, what we call CRPs, cultural representative program. These are young people that come from all over the world to work in Epcot. And they, they, they come from all, I mean, Africa, Asia, Europe, uh, Oceania, every, everywhere. Wow. And these people began sitting at our table and we would hear their stories and we yeah. would, we would, we go past the Disney smiles, you know, we get past the pixie dust <laughs> and start, and start asking them questions about their lives. Yeah. And they'd start to open up with us. And mm. now this isn't keeping in mind, they'd never been in an American home before. So to sit sit with us at dinner, just being part of our family, when they would walk out the front door, they would say, I don't know why, but I feel very safe here. Oh, interesting. Mm. Now, you and I know that's not because of my wife and our hospitality. (laughs) 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 It was the presence of Jesus. And we started talking about that with them. It's like, well, it's, you know, it's who Jesus is. And I will tell you that everyone in our church when they came into cast member church, 99% of them had never touched a Bible in their lives. Wow. Wow. Never. So there was no point of reference that, you know, if you're going to, this idea of God loves you, it's which one are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Or or we heard everything. I mean, our, our dinner table has had over a thousand cast members sit there and encounter Jesus in a new, in in for the first time. Yeah, And so the stories are, I could go for hours telling you stories wow. after stories. But what I, I guess what I take from all of that is that it's a little emotional for me when I think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, young people are searching. Young people are searching. They're not hostile. They're not, they're not hostile to the church. They actually want to know, but we just have to learn how to communicate in a way that they'll understand. And so Casimir Church has been birthed through relationship, not through worship services, not through invitational type things, but actually going to them and getting into their lives and they become part of our family. Mm. Stephen, um, how exactly does the church work? Like you, like you said, cast members are working on Sundays. They're working on Saturdays. They're working throughout the week. Like, uh, it's not like Disney's closed on Sundays. So it can't be a Sunday centric church. So help people understand. Uh, we, in the first part of the segment, you told us a cast member church has a different look. Help us understand the mechanics of cast member church. Sure. Uh, cast member church is more like a network now. Uh, it, of course, it started here at Walt Disney World, uh, but we've multiplied now to where we're all over. Uh, we're on, uh, we're on six continents now. So we have, uh, what we would call micro communities. D for Disney, unless they get upset <laughs> and then it stands for disciple. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but we call them communities and really what they are are families, families of cast members or former cast members, because obviously sometimes people move on and but they want to stay connected and they engage uh, with with just the stuff that's going on in their lives and applying scripture to that. Uh, every community is unique. It's culturally unique based on who's involved in it. But there is, I would say it's more like a network that we're shepherding. And so uh, most of these people that come in have no connection to Jesus previously. So we are not only teaching them about who he is, but modeling 
modeling who he is, because mm. it's it's one thing to give them information about Jesus, which is imperative, but they need something to imitate. They need mm. to see him lived out mm. so that when they come to faith in Christ, they know how to live it with other people around them, to their yeah. families, to their friends. Mm. So it it's I my wife and I are on zoom a lot, even before the pandemic, <laughs> we were, wow. we were zooming. So, uh, we were already set up when, when the pandemic hit, but, um, but yeah, so we're investing in their lives relationally. Um, we don't have, um, an actual worship gathering. I know that may sound strange to, to your listeners, but in this culture that we're, we're, focused on. Yeah. Uh, we look at worship now as, as a Romans 12, one as offering your bodies as living sacrifices. So mm-hmm. everything we do is an act of worship mm-hmm. and there's encouragement and all that comes along. There's teaching. It just takes place on a more personal basis in a smaller environment. They're not small groups. I, some people might say, Oh, okay. It's a small group church. No, because each group has a mission. Each group functions almost autonomously as its own little church. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's just that we share the common DNA of Disney and have having come to faith uh, in Christ uh, in the Disney culture. Mm. Oh, that is so awesome. Brian and I are both church planters. So this, this is like right up our alley. I, I just love this. I do want to switch a little bit, Stephen, and talk about your book, and then you have an upcoming book as well. Let's let's uh, just dive into the first book, A Guide to Life Beyond Imagination. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Um, when we started Cast Member Church, uh, focusing on people who did not have a point of reference when it came to biblical understanding or even a biblical paradigm, uh, we were still, I mean, we were living the Great Commission. We were called to make disciples. And uh, someone has once said, I love this quote, and that is discipleship begins before conversion. Mm. And so when we decided to create some tools that allowed us to communicate what the life of a disciple is like and and how to how to step into faith. And so we created this tool called the Quest Compass, and we just used it in Cast Member Church. It was a simple way to explain how to hear from God, how to how to walk by faith, and how to recognize when he's working and 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 respond to that. And someone once someone brought up the subject of, "Hey, we we would like to do this in our church." And another person contacted me, "We would like to do it in our church." Mm. And I thought, "Okay, well, I started sharing the tools and uh, the book was born out of that." And wow. and the, the premise certainly is the fact that God has created us to live a life beyond anything we could ask for or imagine. Mm. And we, but that an adventurous life is also scary. You know, walking by faith is scary. Yeah. But when you know that Jesus is the one who's leading you, oh my gosh, it's a life beyond imagination. Oh, that's great. And you have another book coming out as if you don't have enough going on in your life. Uh, I believe it's coming out in 2022 called Kingdom Influence, Three Proven Keys to Revealing Jesus in a Skeptical and Suspicious World. Give us kind of the maybe when it comes out, we'll have you back on to dive into it. But give us kind of the 30,000 foot kind of thought process behind this book. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm really excited about this. This is uh, what it comes down to is most people in the church today don't realize how God could work through them. And whether it's at the grocery store, whether it's at work, whether it's on the playground, and every follower of Jesus possesses 
a kingdom influence. And I wanted to strip away the fear that people have about living their faith out loud, living it in a way that connects with other people. And so I just basically discovered three things that every human being needs. And if we can learn to live into those three things, we can do it. And I'll share them with you because it's, it's, um, uh, I, I'm, it, it's worth knowing them. The first one is every human being wants to be valued. Mm. They want to be valued. They want to know that they matter. And yeah. so we need to start learning how to express value to people. It's just by acknowledging the woman who checks you out at the grocery store and, and, and is doing your groceries saying, Hey, I just want you to know you are, you just brighten my day every time I see you or mm. the person that helps you in, in, at, at Home Depot and say, you know what? I just want to thank you. You just made my day so much better. Valuing people is huge. Absolutely yeah. huge. And anyone can do that. The second thing is forming trust. This mm. is the hard one. Okay. We want people to open up to us. We have to be willing to open up with them, yeah. which means don't try to portray the Christian life as perfect. Yeah. It, it, share your doubts, share your fears, share the things that you have in common with people who don't know Jesus. Just because I follow Jesus doesn't mean that I don't wrestle with temptation or I don't wrestle with certain doubts about my faith. That's just, that's the reality of, of life. And when we start to open up that we don't have it all figured out, they will too. Mm. And they will start to, they will start to trust us. So we form trust that way. That takes time. It could be a one, a one-time conversation, or it could take a thousand conversations, but it's worth doing that intentionally. The third step is offering hope. Mm. Every person wants hope. We, we live in a world right now that feels very, really, really hopeless. And that's all we hear is how hopeless things are. So a word of hope, and it doesn't always have to be the, the gospel in its, in its full yeah. expression. It doesn't always have to be the, the four spiritual laws. It's just simply acknowledging that there's more than the situation that you're going through and that there is, there is a light at the end of the tunnel or that there is a hand ready to reach out. But those three keys, if we learn to, if we learn to express value, form trust and offer hope, we can start building relationships with people who don't know Jesus that will be vibrant, that will be, that will produce fruit over the course of time. And I've seen it proven out yeah. uh, time and time and time again. It's not, it's not rocket science. Yeah. Yeah. It's just hard. That book looks important. It's coming out soon called Kingdom Influence. Stephen, this has been so fun. I have one more really important short question to ask you. Sure. Uh, you, you get it. You, you go to Disney World. You're there. You're in Orlando. You get onto the ground. You're at Disney World, but you only have time to go to one ride or one attraction. <laughs> That's all you've got. You're, they're going to tell you, you can, you can cut the line. You could go to the front. You've got time to do one thing. What is Stephen Barr doing at Disney World? It depends on what day it is, but I would say Hollywood Studios, Mickey's Runaway Railway. Oh, I love that ride. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. Well, Stephen Barr, again, is the founding pastor of Cast Member Church, author of A Guide to a Life Beyond Imagination. He has another book coming out called Kingdom Influence. Uh, you can follow him, connect with him on Facebook at Stephen L. Barr CMC and on Instagram at Stephen L. Barr. Stephen, this has been a ton of fun. Aubrey and I were joking. We want to bring our show to your church, to you. So. Yes. <laughs> the door is open. The door is open. 
thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.